Um, let me start by wishing everyone a happy new year and best wishes for a safe, healthy and prosperous 24. Uh, I, for one, am glad to get 23 in the rearview mirror. I think a lot of people feel that way. Today, I'd like to talk about the digital economy in the US and our industrial policy. Um, and while I believe uh, the administration's done some good things, I think they've also done some not so good things, but uh, the commitment to supporting the digital economy and rebuilding our infrastructure and manufacturing bases would be on the more positive side of the ledger for the Biden administration. And uh, Mark, I share the view about the digital economy being one of the keys for going forward and, and uh, the view on semiconductors is a big part of it. It's been a, a big part of the ARS thesis for some time. So we know there's been a big battle between the US and China, both uh, geopolitically, economically, and, uh, and from a technological perspective as well. You can see the digital economy growing in each area and uh, we're both about uh, moving towards 10% of our uh, economy is uh, digital. I think this is gonna be playing out uh, in a lot of different ways going forward. You're seeing it with uh, uh, in Europe right now with ASML, you're seeing it with uh, what technologies are gonna be allowed to flow. Last week, China put out a ruling on rare earth uh, where certain technologies for refining rare earths will not be allowed uh, to be accessed outside the, uh, of China or outside of their allies. So there is a big battle going on and this is gonna be playing out and it's gonna be critical for how we move forward. I think the other key element of the digital economy aside from the uh, geopolitical aspects is the economic aspect where we have productivity issues around the world and in the US and productivity took a hit uh, when the pandemic uh, came through. You can see from the chart in the blue line, uh, the decline of the uh, productivity uh, moving from the pandemic hitting uh, really through uh, towards the latter part of last year. And then as we started to bottom with inflation bottoming, you started to see a uh, move up in productivity. And that's gonna be critical because we have demographic issues, we have labor cost issues, we have labor availability issues um, that are going to be key for uh, countries to move forward. So who wins the digital race is gonna be, uh, uh, have big implications for their, for their nations going forward. So the digital economy is so important because it's growing at a much faster rate than the rest of the economy. And as you can see from the chart here, um, from 17 to 22, US GDP grew at about 2.2%. Um, the digital economy grew at 7.1% uh, in uh, real added value. And when you look at what last year, what 22 was alone, 6.3 versus 1.8, significant difference in, in the growth rates there. And I think this is gonna be a big element of why there's so much emphasis on it and why the U.S. is in a very particularly good spot relative to the rest of the world. Hey, Stephen, sorry for the introduction. Could you define digital economy for me, please? Sure. Uh, the digital economy makes up four areas, basically. It is the infrastructure for the system, which uh, would be the uh, basic physical materials, organizational arrangements uh, that support the, uh, the computer networks and the like. So it's, I, it's the uh, information, communications, uh, technology, goods and services. It's uh, uh, the hardware and software that goes with it. That's one element. The second element is e-commerce. Uh, 
which we all understand is the sale of goods, whether B2B or B2C. Um, then you have digitally priced goods, which is like your Netflix services and uh, cloud services, telecommunication and internet services and other price digital services. So the monthly subscription packages. And then lastly, what's included in there is federal non-defense digital services or the annual budgets for the government uh, agencies that are non-defense whose services are directly supporting the digital economy. So it's all the elements that make up what is our, our uh, digital system in the US. And these are the sub areas that are the activities that drive that. And as you can see back in 17, uh, the, well, I'll go through the categories are software. It then goes to is the blue. Then you go into telecommunication services, business to business, e-commerce, hardware, uh, other digital price services, cloud, uh, business to consumer, and then uh, internet and data services. And what's interesting, as you can see, is obviously software has been a big driver since 17 and remains that. But now you're seeing the really the growth of telecom and cloud services that are really starting to take off and push the, these other areas and business to business e-commerce. So those are the things that are pushing the, the system up. And I think you're starting to see a spreading out. And as we move from a tech sector to all businesses embracing technology and the digital transition, you're starting to see the, the flow even out more and it'll reduce, I think over time, the impact of the Magnificent Seven and increase the impact of traditional businesses. I think we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more in a minute. The sectors that are contributing to the growth of the digital economy are uh, IT, professional services and business services, wholesale trade, manufacturing and retail. What's interesting when you look at this chart on the left is what the numbers looked like in 17. And then you look at five years later in 22 and the massive increases in each of these areas is really fascinating. And I think that's just a broadening out and a adoption throughout the global economy and throughout the US economy of these digital technology of these technologies that are improving our lives. And when you think about what it's doing for growth rates and you think about the areas that we just touched on, uh, infrastructure, the total digital economy, digital price services, they're all you know at much higher growth rates than the overall economy and much higher growth rates than uh, the rest of the spending. So I think this is why it's so important and when you think about the real problems that exist in the system, you get a sense why the need to move forward as aggressively as in these areas is gonna be. And fast forward and look at what it means for employment. And right now the digital economy in the areas we described employs just under 10, 9 million people in 22. That's gonna to start to pick up, but you can see how this uh, is moving and think about the areas like manufacturing right now where, and construction where we're trying to build up our manufacturing base, getting the people with the skills to build the plants and then to, uh, to work the plants is gonna be a key element of, of what we have going on. And this is a big, and you look at it from a compensation perspective, 22 is $1.3 trillion of comp. Uh, I think that's out of about 16 trillion of comp for the US. So uh, it's a growing part of the business and it's going to continue to pick up, but it's also broadening out into other parts of the economy which will raise wages for those areas uh, and moving them from just the Googles and, and putting them into uh, line positions in, in companies. And I think that shift is going to uh, broaden out uh, the workforce, but also help raise compensation for uh, workers in not in the big tech companies. 
So what does this mean for CEOs and CIOs uh, and chief uh, uh, financial officers? The spend is shifting and it's starting to grow. And this takes a look from Deloitte uh, back in 16, tech budgets as a percent of revenues was around 3.3%. Fast forward to where they're projecting for 24, closing in on 6%. And you can start to see the move. This is as a percent of revenue, that's a big change. And this is not done evenly across industries because some industries pulled forward a lot of their spend. So uh, when we went uh, to remote work, the banking capital markets areas uh, clearly pulled back, insurance, financial services, one area. Healthcare, uh, parts of healthcare system had shutdowns where the pharma areas started to increase the spend. So you have very different mixed pictures inside some of these areas. But in general, you're seeing the people that didn't benefit starting to increase their spend during the pandemic. And those that were big pandemic beneficiaries are shifting their spend around. So they're not going to have big increases, but they'll have changes in their spending. I think it, what you're seeing, though, is a broadening out of the spend, much like you're seeing a broadening out in the public markets. So what were they spending it on? Uh, when you go back to 18, half of the spend, more than half the spend, 55% was just optimizing existing business capabilities with 26% adding, augmenting those uh, existing capabilities with new things you could do to kind of jazz things up. And only 20, 19% were focused on new business models and new markets. And you shift forward and you're starting to see big changes where you're still seeing companies optimize existing capabilities, but a much bigger push towards new markets, new revenue lines, new, new revenue streams. And I think we're going to see with the adoption of AI that accelerate at a much faster rate, but you're also going to be able to cut costs on the optimizing business, uh, new business capabilities and put more of that spend to the new revenue generating and new capability generating models. And I think that shift is gonna be very critical to the who wins and who loses going forward. So where were they spending on uh, when this, they did the survey? The biggest areas to spend the last two years were cyber modernizing and updating legacy systems and the shift to the cloud. I would just point out, I still think we're early in the shift to the cloud. I know it's been going on for a while but there's a lot more to go. I would suggest we're still not halfway through that shift. And now with the uh, advent of AI really coming into the mainstream, you're gonna start to see all the black lines on this chart below the shift to cloud start to get more spend and start to see them move up as AI lets you use data science and analytics more. It increases product, you'll have more productivity tools and you'll have more mobile applications coming out of it. So I think the changes that we're starting to see are gonna be coming very fast, but there'll be fits and starts with AI that will be similar to the fits and starts we had with the clean energy transition, but it'll all be for the better as we move forward. So let me close with our, just our general views of the world going into the new year. I do think we borrowed some of this year's performance with the strong fourth quarter that we had. So I think we have to be careful about uh, the enthusiasm we have for the markets. Um, because there are big changes going on in the global economy that we've talked about, whether it's the cost of living adjustments we're still dealing with, you know, the uh, Social Security announced a 3.2% increase for those living on Social Security this year, following an 8% increase last year, and another big increase the year before. So that's helping, but is it offsetting the spend that they have with healthcare costs and other costs rising? Still need to see how that plays out, and we still have 
big things going on in the normalizing of the economy, whether it's with uh, car used car prices or with housing. So you're still seeing adjustments going on there. The global fragmentation we've talked about seems to be worsening. The US was sinking Houthi ships in the Red Sea. Iran is starting to move more supplies over there. So is the conflict uh, expanding or not? I think we have to see how that plays out. President Xi came out with his uh, uh, State of the Union yesterday, or not a State of the New Year yesterday, reinforcing the unification uh, desires of China with Taiwan. So that continues to play out and what's going on with Ukraine and Gaza and how, how that plays out is still top of mind. And yet we have all these changing terms of trade in part due to the rising cost of living and the global fragmentation. Just look at what's going on with the uh, Suez Canal uh, and the rerouting of traffic there. So a lot going on in, in terms of the reindustrialization of the world and the changing terms of trade that will still play out. Some companies will benefit, some will get hurt. I think we are, the market is ahead of themselves on the expectations for easing by the Fed. The Fed announced in their dot plots three cuts and the market moved to six. Something seems amiss there. I think we've gotten a little too aggressive uh, with how things have uh, normalized. And I think we're going to have a lot more fits and starts uh, in the first half of this year than people are expecting. We're still very positive on climate and AI. We think they're massive stimulants for the global economy, but there'll be a lot of money lost in them as well. Um, so keep that in mind. Play it carefully. Um, and really think about margin of safety. Not everyone's going to win here. Governments in the private sector are really defining the big spending opportunities. Chinese government is one. The U.S. government is another. And now European governments are really looking to see how they're going. And then the Middle Eastern governments, led by the Saudis, are really looking at how to shift their economies. And, and they're defining where the spending goes and where the investment opportunities are. Make sure you're following the, along where they are with, with their spends. And it won't, it'll be a lot of fits and starts there too. And particularly with the US this year, with the elections and with all the elections around the world, they could see massive changes uh, going on because of the government transitions. All that said, we are living in one of the most incredible periods of innovation we'll experience in our lifetimes. And the future should be really bright in spite of all the problems that are out there. So we're positive on the markets for this year. We're positive on the economy overall. But we think it'll be quite a bumpy ride with a lot of excitement along the way. So, uh, Mark, hopefully it's uh, a little less exciting on the negative side than we had last year and more positive on the productive side as we move into the new year. So let's stop and open up for discussion. Thank I you. I have a quick question. Oh, sorry, I don't know. Sorry, go ahead. Well, Adam Blanco wanted to be the first question of the year, apparently, because he put his hand up first. So you, if you put your hand up next, Sanjeev, you'll be number, number two. Thank you, Mark. Happy New Year, everyone. And thank you, Stephen, for ending this uh, 2024 presentation on a very positive note. Um, we've got a lot of head ahead of us. Um, can you go back to, I think it's slide nine, where you talked about the um, new markets innovation, investments, spends in new markets. Yep. Um, what are those new markets? Do you have an idea? There, right there, that one. Well, yeah, it depends on each business, Adam. What What's going to expand? Is it, um, are, are you looking 
right now? Are, are people in Europe lining up to for the rebuild? Is that a new market opportunity? Or does AI take you in a different direction as a company? Those are the things that people are asking um, for the new opportunities. What does AI mean? What is the reconstruction needs of the of the world going to be going forward? Are those new markets, new opportunities? Are you shifting your spending to benefit from that? Or are you using technologies to get into new areas? Um, they're going, it, it really depends on each each industry. What are, the, what are the triggers that are going to allow you to shift? Um, if you go back to the steel industry a couple of years ago, they went through a transformation like this. And Cliffs is a good example where they were really a, uh, an iron ore company that completely reorganized themselves into uh, a, a leading steel company in the US and they took on other projects and modernized their facilities to be ready for uh, the new world. So they did a lot of the clean energy spend already and that's gonna create new markets or new revenue models because when you think about the IRA Act or the IIJA, they're changing the rules that you have to have certain requirements to meet those uh, spends or to get the benefits from the government programs. So these are the things that companies are going to do to find new revenues. Or in the case of uh, the travel industry, which I'm involved in, we're creating AI that allow uh, corporate people, uh, corporate travelers to send an email and get your itinerary back instead of logging into this, the bulky uh, travel budget system. So it's all those things that can augment your capabilities or create new markets for you that they're looking at. So no different than it was before. It's just how does technology drive you into these new areas? And keep in mind, you have uh, behind AI, quantum is coming fast too, which is going to change a lot of the models. And you're going to have to think about new new revenue generation that way as well. Thank you, Steve. hope that answers your question. So, yes. Joel and Sanjeev. Yeah, Stephen, I just wanted to ask you, um, and you've kind of touched on it already, but you mentioned reindustrialization of the global economy. I think that's the terminology you yep. use. What exactly do we mean by reindustrialization in this point, in this case? And what does that portend? I mean, aren't we already industrialized? I mean, how how would this transform in a positive way, or is it just a continuation of where we're going? I'm not sure it's in a positive way, but what we have seen is we used to have manufacturing be very local, very domestic, um, and very high cost because it was inefficient. We then took the last 40 years and shifted it to the lowest cost areas um, for the greatest efficiencies. And now we've completely re uh, uh, are completely redoing our global supply systems. And that is leading to a reindustrialization that is not just economic, it gets military and social implications of it as well. So they're all connected, but it is bringing manufacturing back closer to home so that you are protected from a national security uh, issue and from a uh, lowering of cost issues as well. So that's part of it. And then it's also they're just modernizing the whole global trade system around the world to be more efficient. And then lastly, you had, you have to overlay on that the geopolitical elements where we are a fragmented world where we're moving to an East and a West or an autocratic versus democratic or, or a trifurcated world if you say the global South will play both sides against the middle. So I think that's what's, there are all these changes going on 
and we're dealing with that. We're adjusting to it. And that's part of the reason why inflation, while it's come down a lot, has the risk of reemerging is because these systems are still adjusting. And that adjustment process doesn't happen overnight. Just think of the carve out of US manufacturing took 20 years. To rebuild it will take another 20. Maybe, maybe it's half the time because of technology, but it takes a while to do. So I think that's the way I would look at reindustrialization. Thank uh, thanks. Um, so, Stephen, just a quick question on, I think it was slide nine or 10. You yep. were referring to the tech budgets increasing compared to 2021. Uh, do you know what what is that budget being taken away from? If it's coming onto tech, where is it coming? What other budget percentage is, is decreasing? I don't have that from the, uh, from the uh, Deloitte survey off the top of my head, so I'm not sure. Um, it is one of the it's one of the great issues, though, is um, there is crowding out coming for people. So how do you deal with the crowding out? Mm -hmm. um, because budgets are limited and we have costs creep in other areas. So um, really, I think the biggest one that they're looking to offset is this is all about over the long term substituting capital for labor. Yeah. Labor costs are the highest costs you have in a company. So to be successful, you have to bring them down. So everything is geared towards substituting capital for labor. Thank you. You're welcome. And I would just add too, when you think about the spend around productivity, productivity, the way you should think about it is, it is the antidote to inflation. The only way you get past inflation is to increase the productivity. That's really the key, key driver for it, because that's the only way to do it on a sustainable basis. Anna? Anna? Hello, everyone. Uh, uh, Stephen, thank you very much, as always. My question actually is tied to Sanjeev's question, which was also great. So if we look at this, um, organizations, when they make changes to technology processes, these are multi-million kind of change initiatives. And if they just invested, let's say, last year into digital transformation, whatever that was, now they're making a new investment into AI-based or fueled or facilitated technology with a change in processes. That's another multi-million kind of initiative. Is there data on there's a return on investment or ideally we should be looking at the return on investment in, in the first place. And we have these changes happening like spiraling and the pace of those changes, they're layering and layering and layering. Where does, uh, is there any data on how companies are actually looking at the ROI at all and Part actually of the, of the answer you already shared is there is this readjustment, reallocation of the budgets, but still there's this notion, at least the feel I have, is that companies are not utilizing the benefit of the prior technology before they get into the new one. They are not getting the return on that investment in the, in the first place. Um, I think this is, a, this is a real challenge for chief technology officers like cybersecurity. Um, the dilemma with cybersecurity, if you're the chief tech officer, is if you spend a lot and you don't get hacked, you overspend. If you don't spend enough and you get hacked, you get fired for not spending enough. So you can't win, right? In that case, it's it's really binary outcomes. Here, the issue is going to be all the people think they have the answer that's going to move the company forward the biggest way. 
And a lot of those solutions, you can only try a couple of these and get certain areas going. Um, if you try and do too much, it's not going to work and you won't get any return on it. I think the hype of AI is ahead of the reality. And I think a lot of money is going to be lost trying to figure out the difference between the two. Um, and it's going to be trial and error. Like, you know, when you think about all the people who went out and got the big CRM systems when, when CRM first came out uh, years ago, and you spent a million dollars on it, you had a system that was no better than you had before because you had to get programmers in to program all the things you really wanted it to do. Um, AI will be like that as well. And we'll go through these birthing processes where some people are going to knock it out of the park and others are going to get killed. Yeah. And that's just the reality of it. So yeah, there'll be a lot of money lost along the way and the winners mm -hmm. will win big. Thank you. Welcome. Andy Fish. Uh, yeah, I was going to comment, Stephen, I don't know if you want to throw up the page of the different industries, but if you say banking came down because banking had been investing for decades in modernizing its tech infrastructure, other industries are doing things like putting supply chains uh, on the blockchain. So everybody thinks of crypto, but they're actually putting supply chains in the blockchain. So uh, I think a lot of these investments are uneven. AI is actually, I think today, a very, very small piece of, of what this chart represents. But there's a lot of companies that where you have cloud enabled, app enabled, uh, all the things that changed with the pandemic, with hybrid work, uh, all our investments, as Stephen said, in productivity, which ones <laughs> actually turn out to, um, uh, Stephen, the page that had the differential, I think it's the next page, uh, that one. This one? Um, no, no, the differential, that one. Yeah, so you can see the ones going up and the ones that, that are less, but notice the ones that, that are going up and the ones that are less aren't the same size. So there's a lot of industries that never invested actually in modernizing. And to, to Neil's question, where's it coming from? They're investing in themselves uh, in the way you would invest in uh, new machinery or new uh, office space or new what, whatever. It's just coming out of their investment budgets. There's no other place for it to come from. So the productivity gains, I don't know if we're going to see them on a net basis, uh, the way you know the chart captures everything. But on an industry-by-industry industry basis, and Stephen and ARS are probably better than me at this, uh, it's going to affect different industries a lot and some uh, really not at all. Well, uh, Andrew, may I add to that point? On a roll-by-roll roll basis, too, inside companies. Well, there's an interesting point, if, if I may, again, I'm sorry to step in here, but Steve, I think, Andrew, the your point about the blockchain, for example, you know, some of the countries that I'm working with, especially in the esports realm, are doing other things, especially with the transportation and importing, right? For example, we have in the U.S. a new rule, FSMA 204, right? So that's going to require a lot of blockchain adaptation to automate the trace. You know, certain foods like lettuces, cabbages, so the federal government put out a list of certain foods that do require it to be under the FSMA 204 regulation. And other countries are going to have to follow that. So those countries that are going to be importing, exporting with the U.S. to the U.S. certain food products are going to have to innovate on the blockchain. Because to your point, Andrew, a lot of people 
mix crypto and blockchain together, which is not necessarily the truth, right? Blockchain is there to solve a business value reason of connecting two or more entities to solve a business problem, right? Some of the examples I've used in the past is a very simple example of buying a Ford car. You go in, you have the automaker, you have the engine maker, the tire maker, they're all part of the blockchain to solve that issue. Now, going to your point about the food supply, right? So for doing things like FSMA and other identified needs the government says you have to do with your food products, that's going to shift a whole new innovation. The AI and those pieces are going to be brought into the blockchain. You know, things like weather.com, things like NASA data, things like agriculture data are all going to be brought in to really advance on that AI. So I think I think that, that point you made, Andrew, is very valid. Even you want to add to that? No. Nope. I agree. Wanda? Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. Stephen, I'd like to touch on uh, a conversation that we had a few months ago um, on digital economy and data. Uh, so data is the underpinning of digital economy. Data determines the valuation of companies, but data, the value of data does is not included in the GDP calculation, which is again underpinning of all other calculations such as productivity. So how central banks, how we should think about that, how we should reconcile that value of the data itself, for corporations' economy and for those macro concepts and calculations? It's a great question, and the government hasn't figured out a way to do it yet. And I don't think anyone really has gotten that one down yet. But I would say you touch on one of the really key points is who has the data has the value. And when you think about the FANGs, you think about the banks, and you think about the healthcare companies. And think about who owns the who has the data. You can see who's undervalued uh, still, and who's probably maybe not as overvalued as people might think they are. So uh, you know, Michael just threw into uh, hammer threw in data's the new oil, and I think he's right on that. It's a question of can people use it and monetize it the way they need to, and who's going to be successful at it. And that's really what AI is going to do. Is that's going to be the determination of not who has AI, but who has it in a way that can monetize it effectively. And I think that's the same with the data. Uh, I think you're right on that, Wanda. And it isn't captured, and will it be better? They're trying. You know, the, If you look at the central banks, go to the regional banks of the Fed, they're all trying to find ways to um, capture the data better, but they just haven't done it yet. Thank you. Wanda. Wanda, are you coming to Florida for a rematch? I'm not sure yet. Not sure yet. Okay, we'll, we'll be in touch. Austin. So just wanted to share some personal anecdotes. So I work in tech, I work for Google, I'm in quantum computing, I'm part of their quantum computing team. So there's been a few comments about AI versus quantum. AI, meaning things like ChatGPT, is already a tool we use daily with hype impact in our group. So it can do things that even very high level Google software engineers can't do already. And it's still very, very new. 
2023 is when we first had access to these tools, you can already ask it to write functions that no human would ever be able to do. So the potential for very deep impact on research grade programming and indeed all programming, I think is very, very high. It's already an essential tool that our team uses. Versus quantum, some people have mentioned that this is something to watch out for. I would say that it's still at least 10 years away, right? This is something I've been doing for over 20 years of my life. It's much harder to build a quantum computer than most people think, much harder, much more expensive. The spend at Google, for those that are curious, is probably around a billion dollars a year on quantum. And we still only have very early stage prototype devices with another 10 years down before we get that. Getting any kind of meaningful investor level return on that investment for someone that's not Google seems very hard for me to imagine how that's even possible, right? So you'll see hundreds of quantum startups out there saying how they're gonna revolutionize the world and raise a few hundred million dollars and build an incredible quantum computer. I think that is manifestly impossible, like really impossible. Uh, the kind of level of research required, the number of people, you know, we have over 200 people, IBM has over 500 people. That's a lot of salary and that's every year just to build these very, very small devices. And the algorithms that people are saying that we need to compete with anything commercially are either completely absent, as in no one really knows what you would use the quantum computer for, or require quantum computers of vast scale. So, you know, our very biggest, best quantum computer at the moment at Google has 100 qubits to do factoring of what are nowhere near the strongest RSA keys would require 20 million qubits and no one knows how to build that. So 10 years is an extremely aggressive timeline where you would even begin to have an impact there. So just sharing that personal experience, quantum patience, no one really knows whether quantum will work out. This is what I do with my life. It's still a research project. There is no amount of money you can throw at any tech right now to build a quantum computer. It's still research to see if we can even do it. So Austin, how do you how do you compare what's happening in China and their investment into quantum? So they spend a lot of money and they have ramped up to levels that we took longer to reach. So it's a very aggressive competitor, you know, to the point where a lot of the research we do is export controlled. We have Chinese nationals on our teams that are not even allowed to look at all of our code base. So the government is very concerned by that competition. The level of spending there is quite enormous. Uh, you know, we have people on our team that have visited these labs and said that every time we publish anything, it becomes a poster in their lab and they aggressively try to replicate it. We have direct experiments where we published it and then they published a year later, a better version and we're going tit for tat. So yeah, it is very serious competition in China. Um, having said that, it's the same kind of competition that happens in the you know, top 10 supercomputers in the world. US builds one, then China builds one, right? You know, how much do they change people's life on the ground is unclear. This has become a, a chest beating exercise in race to build quantum, but the fundamentals of the receipt research remain. If you're trying to make money from it, buyer beware. I think it's unlikely. If you want to use a quantum computer, you're going to have to wait 10 years plus. And there is still a significant risk that the tech 
just turns out to be way too expensive to beat a quantum, beat a classical computer. All right. Uh, so, so it sounds like you would be a good co-leader of a quantum uh, deep dive. Sure. If so, you want to deep dive into quantum, I'd be very happy to elaborate on a lot of the things that people don't know about quantum that are, you know, a lot of people say, oh, quantum is so fast. That's not true. And I can go into great detail as to why that's not true. And the kinds of very narrow areas where there's even a chance of impact and the challenges of maintaining that competitive advantage, even in those areas as we move forward. So summary, as a researcher in the area, it's still a research area. Do not think at any level there's any guaranteed return at all. It's already extremely expensive to make uh, progress in this area. Well, as Stephen Burke likes to say, follow the money. The government is is, is going to be your customer. Uh, yeah. money. But uh, Lauren, we haven't seen you in a while. Over to you. Uh, I just wanted to, can you hear me? Yep. I just wanted to share how AI has, you could say, kind of like reached the level of the masses. This keyboard here is, you know, offered and advertised as AI assistant. And I'm not going to lie to you. You know, when it comes from like a performance com comp composing production standpoint, I can do with this thing, what used to take me or could take me in a studio some days or even weeks. You know, I can do this in a matter of hours, even an afternoon with this thing. You know, I can go into detail when anybody would be interested. But one of the things I find interesting about this one is that unlike something like a chat GP or something like that, it, it really is designed that you could say it's not like you put something in and it spits something out. You know, it really is that it's a, you know, integrated process of, of what I do with it. And I mean, I'm telling you, it even like follows my mistakes, you know. And so I, I'm telling people, you know, I don't care what they say about AI. If this is what AI is about, you know, sign me up for real. Thank you. Good to see you again. Anyone else on these subjects or others? Um, I just wanted to ask Austin, uh, what do you think of Sandbox AQ, Austin? Say that again. Sorry, I missed that. Uh, I wanted to ask a question regarding Quantum from Austin, regarding Sandbox AQ. Eric Schmidt oh. is the chairman. Got it. Okay. Sure. I'm not familiar with that company. It's a big world. They're like 200 startups. Can you elaborate? Um, from what I know, when Eric was leaving uh, Google, he looked at it, all the different projects and said, I want to get involved with this. And Jack was at Google X. So he is the founder and Eric is the chairman. Uh, we're going to be working with them in Kind of expansion to the Middle East. Um, specifically, they were interested in uh, Gigafactory for taking, um, you know, atomic level representation of battery and simulating it in software. Sure. Um, they have raised, I think, around publicly 500 million. Um, we are interested in applications on, as I mentioned, on battery, and also another one would be on uh, option trading. Sure. The to simulate a battery. I mean, this is research that I'm familiar with. One of my 
co-PhD students was working on this area. It's a very big computation. So what people don't appreciate with the quantum computer is extremely difficult to represent a lot of data. People say, oh, it's going to be useful for big data. We have 100 qubits in the lab. To build one logical, robust bit, you need 1,000 or more. If you have a million qubits, what you really have is the ability to represent 1,000 bits of data. So if you can't describe your problem with 1,000 bits of data, and for a battery simulation, you typically cannot. You can't even use it on a quantum computer. So it's extremely difficult to find some problem that actually is useful that can be represented with a tiny amount of data and then has any chance of even running on a quantum computer. So it's certainly an area which, or, you know, my boss's boss's boss, the guy that runs the quantum group, will say, we will have an impact on this area. But there is a reality and a sales pitch, and that's a sales pitch. The reality is it's extremely challenging to see how you could have an impact on that. You know, a battery is complex. You have liquid solids interacting, all kinds of different evolution. You have growth of dendrites through the electrolyte that can cause short circuits. It's not a simple structure where you just say, oh, it's just simulate this group of a few elements and then you get an answer. Uh, so we will see, oh. we'll work on that, but I, I'm, I'm quite pessimistic that that is an appropriate problem to run on. Oh, computer. Austin, maybe you could come to Florida. because I, I will just, be, I will I, be there. Right, because uh, Ken Goldman answered your question, Cam. I think, didn't you ask that question to him in uh, Newport? He was on my Zoom, but he'll be in he'll be in person in Florida, so you can have we could actually maybe even create a little mini panel, definitely a breakout uh, on this topic. But any yeah. algorithm you choose to raise, the answer will be its potential. There's not a single algorithm which you can run on existing computers or near time computers where you can say this is commercially useful. We have an entire team of people whose job is to find those applications. No. Well, well, let me just big picture process wise, because I'm trying yeah. to, you, I want to like you to have the right people around you to uh, have a 360 on this subject. Um, now, Joseph is, should be part of that 360. I don't know if his back will be good enough uh, to join us, definitely not to play pickleball, but he's yeah, a, probably not going to make it down. Uh, but just to um, follow up on Cam's question, I mean, um, we don't see Sandbox AQ anywhere in the government on the cybersecurity side and, um, you know, uh, not, not in the commercial. I understand that Jack raised, like you said, 500 million on four and a half billion pre no product. So that's a pretty aggressive raise. Um, and I think they've raised actually surprisingly more money at a higher valuation. But to justify that valuation um, without a, a product that's generating significant revenue, uh, you know, I just think it's very risky if you're looking at it from the investment side. Can't really comment on the other areas. I heard that Jack was working on an interface to, you know, to Google's quantum computer, like classical to quantum, which could be interesting. But all, you know, all of these are hardware plays, which I think, you know, as um, you know, the other gentleman who's uh, works for Google, these are these are hard problems. You know, uh, it's not software. It's not it's not an easy easy solve. So it's a long play. Yeah, uh, and to give a little context on that, we tried to spin up a way to allow external people to access Google's quantum computers for a while. And we gave up on that because we felt it just was not worth the effort. The computers were just not good enough to justify the scale of investment that was required. IBM has done that. But if you ever use their machines, you'll find the error rates are terrible. 
Um, quantum computers oh. are extremely difficult to make available to the public. Typically, realistic good experiments are done only internally with lots of PhD students crowd around the computer for a week, and then it runs well for a while. Then you get some data and then it stops working for a while. And I can go into great detail as why that is the case. But these are extremely difficult systems to make available to the public. They're, they're so, not stable. So just before we move on, Billy, you didn't didn't you have a chapter at IBM? You concur? About the quantum mathematically oh. and yeah, quantum uses a lot, a lot of energy, a lot of need. I think one of the things people have to understand is that uh, to keep a quantum computer cool doesn't even you know register on most freezer scales. <laughs> Just the fact that you have to keep it so cool. But I think uh, quantum's making a lot of advances, and and there are some industries right now that are actually using it uh, in their POC departments. Um, but yeah, it is it is a challenge to work with quantum. I myself, I would never say I'm an expert on quantum at all because it advances so quickly but i think one of the things that you know to his point is that the the advances do come with the challenges um you know things such as having an enterprise strength of a quantum computer does require a lot of energy and maybe there's some ways to solve that with some some green energy as well right mm -hmm. so there, there could be two tie-ins quantum computing and green energy approach as well i could see that happening um, just just on the energy side, a quantum computing system at Google is not that energy intensive. You're talking 10, 20 kilowatts. So, you know, a few box heaters to run one of them. But I stress well, that these are tiny. Austin, those require a lot of negative zeros to keep it cool. <laughs> yeah. So, just uh, Joel and Adam, but, I, but Hank, you may have a comment on all this stuff too, since you're in that space. Joe, go ahead. Yeah, no, I want to kind of add on to that and just kind of ask a rhetorical question. I mean, let's assume that we achieve what we want to achieve with quantum computing. Then what? Where are we? What does that really give us that doesn't come with potential unintended consequences that just get us further toward a situation that we're only going to go after the next big thing and to what end? I mean, I all these discussions I, that comes through in my mind, what is the impact? What's the long-term gain with it? And where are we going to end up if we get there? Right. As, as a Wait, research... I think one example, sure. one example, again, I don't want to claim to be the expert, but I think if you're looking at things such as, you know, we just went through the COVID pandemic, right? And have the ability to break down different DNA elements with quantum computing for uh, pharmacy research, scientific research on the COVID elements, right? I think that would be one example, right? Healthcare for the, the COVID studies. Agriculture will be another one. Are there different ways we can improve seeds for for countries like developing countries, either in South America, Africa, other regions that need help on seeds? I think those are the things we're looking at. You know, to Mark's point, let's look at the broad picture, the big picture of the quantum approach, because I think that's where Planet will find value and folks like myself and Austin that dig into the weeds and make it better economically for folks. I think that's where you really have your hit, Joel, if that makes sense. Yeah. Austin, if you ask me, it's as much impact as the Large Hadron Collider had on the economy or the space station, International Space Station. It's a science project. 
uh, I think the trickle-down effects to the rest of the economy will be weak and very vague. I do not think this is a revolutionary tech. Now, I spent my life working on this. I'm saying this, right? I do not think this is a revolutionary tech that will change computing globally at all. I don't think it has the potential to do that. So it would require very big changes in where the tech is heading uh, to make this something that is going to do much impact on the world because there are too many things that a classical computer normal computers already do way better than a quantum computer ever conceivably could a quantum computer will never run a word processor will never run a spreadsheet will never do a database query right it will never run a, a language model a, an ai generated model these things all require way too much data they will never run on a quantum computer the kinds of things a quantum computer can have impact are very highly um, twisted up molecules, something very unusual, where our classical algorithms just don't do a good job. There are just not very many of them, and most of them are not very commercially interesting. You know, analyzing the protein folding problem, no, it's already done classically, right? There's an alpha fold. It's a cracked problem. Quantum computer is not going to help you there. It requires too much data to describe protein. Uh, and we've mentioned things like battery simulations. These are big simulations. It's very hard to see how we would build a quantum computer big enough to even hold the problem, let alone solve it in a reasonable amount of time. So there is a lot of interesting stuff for someone like a researcher. Like they, they are fundamentally different. They have different algorithms that run that are very interesting. And I think you'll find the business case is someone builds a computer, for a government, they do research on cryptography, they do research on algorithms, they research on math, and it's made available to academics and it's part of the research toolkit, all right? Just like a particle accelerator. But in terms of the impact on everyday people, the argument is very weak. And I'm, I'm happy to go into great detail as to why that's the case. So one of my fun areas is the study of themes and gaming on quantum computing, just because of different ways you can look at different graphics, different approaches, on the quantum platform. I think I find that very exciting. So that's some of the areas I've been diving into too. You know, how does that influence development build uh, different types of gamification approaches, even in enterprise business might be a, a oh. possibility. Just something to explore. Other things like we talked a lot about AI, right? Developing a very unique characters and AI and, and the folks that run around within the game. <laughs> are very exciting within quantum computing. Um, what, what's very important, I think, Austin, uh, kick me if I'm wrong on this, but I think one thing is difficult is I don't ask it to do one plus one equals two, <laughs> right? Similar to some AI machines, is like you don't want it to ask it to do basic math because it goes beyond that mathematical level in many levels. No, no, that's, that's actually a really good example. Um, addition, all right? Regular computer. For about $10 a core, you can buy a machine that'll do a billion additions a second, 64-bit additions per second, about 10 bucks. You buy a $10 million machine, you can get about a million cores, roughly. To take those $10 million and spend it on a quantum computer, in our wildest dreams, in our wildest dreams, you might get 100,000 qubits. We're nowhere near that. We're talking orders of magnitude improvement of the tech. But let's just imagine, it took 10 million bucks, you turn it into 100,000 qubits this would just barely be enough to run a 64-bit addition. Same thing the classical computer does, but you would only get about 100 a second. So we've gone from a million cores, 10 to the 6, 
each doing 10 to the 9 additions a sec. So that's 10 to the 15 additions a second to 100. That's reality. It's what most people don't appreciate. A quantum computer's clock rate is very, very, very slow. Dollar for dollar, incredibly slow. Not just a little bit slow, but a factor of a trillion slower. So why, you know, why do people even care about quantum computing? Because you can put in not one, just one number. All right. If I have a third, a 64-bit register with a normal computer, you put in one number. With a quantum computer, in principle, you can put in every possible number in there. And there's about 10 to the power of 19 numbers you could put in. And you get all the answers out in one parallel. But there are catches. You don't get to look at all of those answers. You have to find some global property of all of those numbers that is useful. And there just aren't very many algorithms that have those features. So you can run something exponentially quicker, use the same piece of hardware to carry these exponentially number of possibilities through your hardware, but only very limited cases. And there's another very common thing that happens is every time a researcher in quantum finds one of these cases and say, aha, here's a problem. It has this beautiful property, this beautiful structure. We can use these tricks, overcome that factor of a trillion slowdown with our clever exponential advantage in quantum and solve a new problem. Someone from the classical world goes, oh, that's pretty insightful. That gives me an idea. I can modify my classical algorithm to use some of those features and run it fast. And this is going on all the time, right? So it's a useful enterprise. We're helping drive research in classical algorithms by writing quantum algorithms. It generates new ideas. It's therefore something I'm happy to spend my life doing. But it's very tough to make the argument to an investor that you should put money in this, right? Governments should do it. Big tech should do it. Google uses quantum primarily as a hedge to help them sell classical cloud. All right, that's our business proposition, right? Because so if yeah, so just just and also three sixty one tradition. We don't let anybody rift for too long. But you are. I, I want. I wanted you to rift because you're good. This is very interesting, um, and I have no idea what Adam's about to ask. If it's on topic. Sure. Um, but we definitely want to group. And then, but Anna, you made a good comment, I don't know, to me or to the group. We were talking about, this sort of harks back, if everybody remembers, um, Tom Jump. He was involved with a group called 101010. And they basically put all these people together to solve something. And this sort of, we were reflecting, I went through this exercise with Anna at the lunch, after the lunch, like what, you know, what was my word for the year? My word was design, because I want to design our interactions to be, I always call these messy, but magical, but, it, you know, more magical, maybe less messy. And part of it is maybe we could rally behind solving some, some problems and putting the right people together from our community. Um, you want to maybe elaborate on that, Anna? Yes, what uh, this is a great discussion about quantum specifically, and I think if we just step back from a passion about quantum, seeing what's possible, or maybe like there's just this passion about quantum that it potentially could do all of these wonderful things. And on the other side, we have this, it's, uh, there's so many barriers to uh, raise funds and to bring it into a more optimized way to utilize in the use cases. So, and the potential that I suggested to Mark, that could be a great session problem solving type session where we tackle, because it's all about ideas. It's all about finding these creative solutions 
We tackle the idea of the potential of quantum versus the risks versus the cost and alternatives. And I like what Austin, you mentioned that the developments in quantum, they also fuel developments in classical types. So this is a perfect example. Maybe quantum may not be the end solution, but it fuels other things. And it just, this, this is where the innovation actually, this is how it gets born, the new ideas. And this would be perfect, perfect discussion to go beyond what we know and just imagine, are there ways to make quantum or some form something that relates to quantum to be more uh, investment optimistic from an investment perspective and results in return. So it's just, just such an open field and I think it will be great to explore this. So did expect us to return to this, this uh, concept and we'll take some input from the community on what do we wanna go after? Who do we wanna, who should be in that circle? And where should that circle be? Um...